at the crucifixion. It's where we left off last week. There was a Roman centurion standing there. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And then the passage goes on from Mark chapter 15, verse 40, and says, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joses and Salem. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us? from the entrance of the tomb. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning that we would see the reality of not just your life, of not just your death, but of your resurrection and what that says to us. Lord, I pray that we would truly be resurrection people who would love this and love what you've done for us and love the fact that this is true and that this is real. Lord, may we believe, as the song says, that you rose on the third day. So we ask you for this. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing with our series talking about how uh, Jesus is the greatest of all time. And today is the last sermon in this series. And so what I, I want to say that this is, this is Jesus, the greatest God of all time. Not that there is any other God, but Jesus is 
God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He is the personification of God. He is God himself. And many of us don't really realize this and don't see it. And we especially don't see the reality of what the resurrection does for us. We don't understand uh, what this means or what it says. And so this morning we want to talk about this and talk about how the resurrection really speaks to us in our lives. I don't know if you've ever uh, really paid attention much to the movies that you're watching, but oftentimes when we think about movies, and we think about great movies, really epic movies, whether it's uh, like uh, uh, Braveheart or Gladiator or uh, like, uh, what, what, what is it? I totally forgot the name of it all of a sudden, the Wolverines. Well, what's that? Rambo. Rambo. Okay, yeah. <laughs> These are all stories where main characters die, but uh, in any case, um, uh, Wolverines. What's the, what, what movie am I thinking of? What's that? Red Dawn. Red Dawn, yes. Oh, have you seen this movie? Not the new version. That's ridiculous. It's <laughs> so dumb. But the one with Patrick Swayze, it's a much better movie. Um, but that movie, when I was a kid, oh my goodness, I wanted to be one of those, one of those kids. But in the end, uh, uh, his brother is, is dying and of a gunshot wound and so forth. But you see that in many movies where you see the, the main character, William Wallace, um, dying in Braveheart or in Gladiator. Uh, you see him dying in the middle of the arena. And, but the, the thing, my wife was saying this to me this last week, having no idea that I was going to be preaching on this necessarily, I don't think. Uh, maybe she's led by the Spirit. But she was just saying how cool it is when you think about the resurrection of Jesus as the hero and as the greatest and as this person in life that does all of these amazing things, but he dies. And there's a sense, a real sense of loss. And you see his apostles and his disciples, these, these women especially, who have it in their mind that he's dead. And there's this realization that's kind of setting in with them that, that is saying, he is dead and we don't know what we're going to do and we're scared and we, we, we don't know what's happening. And so there's this deep sense of loss that's, that's really caught up in this idea that this great hero this person, like all of these figures from these great stories that we love, these great movies that we love, they die, and there's a sense of loss because, man, that great person is gone. That, that incredible leader is gone. His brother is dead. There's this incredible loss. But here's where the story is turned on its head. Really, every great story has elements of this. And even, I didn't get into the Matrix much, but in the Matrix, apparently, this central figure dies and then is resurrected at the end. The greatest thing that we can hope for is that our hero lives again. That's the greatest thing that we can hope for. And inside of each one of those stories, as we think about them and as we process them, the sense of loss when you walk out of the theater or you turn it off is that they're not there anymore. They're not, I can't talk with them anymore if you've been engaged with the story on that level. I can't be with that person anymore. You've also experienced this if you've lost someone close to you. Many of us have. 
I remember when I was uh, in my early 20s, uh, one of my best friends, one of my closest friends was killed in a motorcycle accident. And there was a sense of, of loss that John wasn't going to be there anymore. And I, I, I remember going out to uh, the road where he died in a motorcycle accident, and all of us just kind of sat there, and we just kind of reminisced about John and all the dumb things he used to say and how funny he was. There's a sense of loss there. There's a sense of uh, he's gone. We don't get to be with John anymore because John is gone, and John won't make us laugh like he used to, and John won't be there as a friend like he used to. There's loss we see all throughout our society. You see it in great leaders of the past where you just go, man, I wish that that president could come back and, and lead us. And what would this person do today if he were alive? How would he respond here? Jesus is the greatest God because he overcomes the worst thing that can happen, which is death. Jesus is the greatest God because he overcomes all of this. But it doesn't come easily for all of us, does it? The idea that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It doesn't come easily because we don't really uh, understand it. We haven't necessarily seen someone come back from the dead oftentimes. Most of us, there's some people who claim they've seen this, but... We, we don't really know how to deal with this reality all the time. And really, one of the most important things, in fact, the most important thing... When it comes to Jesus Christ is his resurrection. It is his crowning achievement. It is what ratifies and essentially proves everything that he has said about himself. It proves all of those things that he said. It proves that everything that he did really did take place. It is the one proving thing that takes place in his life. And ultimately, he will come back and show himself in power, and we will really know for sure. But the resurrection is his crowning achievement. It ratifies everything that he ever did or has done or talked about or said who he was. That's what it is. But many of us don't take it very seriously or maybe even believe it. Because ultimately what the resurrection leads us to is that he is God. That he is God. Now think about that for a second. Like you can have a pretty high opinion of Jesus and you can say he's a great moral teacher. You can say that you really like him. You can say that you're, you're into Jesus. You can say whatever you want about him. But unless you truly believe and understand who he is and what he's done, unless you understand and believe his resurrection, then really what, what doesn't take root is the fact of his, his godness, his godhood. And really, the Jesus that we're talking about is God. And until you put him into that place in your life, as God, as Lord, as Savior, as the only one, who is able to speak into your life in that way until you realize that, that he is God in the flesh. Not a whole lot happens in your life because you're just left with thinking that Jesus was a good person. Are you just left with diminishing Jesus? 
from who he actually is. And so if he's truly been resurrected, then don't you think that what he says is true? But as we see from this passage, there's a couple of things that uh, his disciples do not really understand. To begin with, when you look at uh, what's, what's happening here, one of the most striking things about this passage is that there are repeated references to these women. Now, this is important because of this, because there was a Greek philosopher named Celsus, and Celsus had a very low opinion of women, did not believe that they should be able to uh, uh, be a witness to verify uh, the claim that he was resurrected. And so he would discount this in their day. Women were denigrated. They were looked down upon uh, at this time. He said that they were hysterical. They can't, really, uh, they can't really figure this out. Even in our own country, uh, we did not allow women to vote for many, many years. And so women were looked down upon, and yet Jesus chooses to reveal himself to these women. He chooses to reveal himself. And what Mark is doing here is he's essentially saying that, that here are these women and they saw it. They saw it. They saw it. In fact, in verse 47 of chapter 15, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. They saw it. They understood it. They realized that here was Jesus. This, these are eyewitnesses. In fact, Paul goes back and he says, people who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, you can go back and talk with them. This is historical record. It is the best historical record that there is because at the time of the writing, you could go back and you could talk to these people and you could say, hey, did you see this? And they would say, yes, this is what I saw. This is, this is, this is what actually happened. So here these women are. These are women who are attesting to who Jesus is. And why does Jesus choose to use these women? Why did God allow this to be written in his word? Because in that day and age, who in the world would try to use women for this fact? Really no one. If you're trying to make something up, if you're trying to fabricate a story, you would not use, in their view, lacking witnesses. You would not use witnesses that would not normally stand up in court. You would use real witnesses according to them. Understand, I don't believe that about women. I want to be very careful. You would use, you would use men. But here they are. They use these women to corroborate these, these accounts. And Mark is essentially saying that these women, they saw what took place. They saw what took place. The second thing that's really important about this story, especially for Mark, is that the angel says, just as he told you. He says, verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, what's he talking about there? What's he, what's he saying? Well, three times in the book of Mark and in the Gospels, what you see is that Jesus is consistently saying on the third day or in three days I will rise. You see it in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and after three days, rise again. This is what Jesus said 
to his disciples. Mark uh, chapter 9, verse, uh, 30 to, verse 32. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Mark 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 34, he says, And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Now, who, again, is going to put together a fabricated story and insert in them, first of all, women. Second of all, <laughs> talk about these disciples who are not really getting it. You would think that on the third day, they would say, hey, remember, Jesus repeatedly said that he was going to rise on the third day. Don't you think that maybe we ought to go look and just kind of see what happened? Like, is he, is he, has he risen from the grave? I mean, we saw him heal people. We saw him, you know, the lamb walk. We saw, we saw him forgive sins. We saw all of these things. Don't you think we ought to go look? Because he said, but they don't believe it. Who's going to put together a fabricated story that says none of his disciples believed him? But then it happens. But then it happens. These are things that corroborate the story because of this. It can't be a fabricated set of circumstances. It has to be that this is really what happened because, as we know, truth is stranger than fiction, as we say. It's very strange that these men and women heard this over and over again, and yet they don't believe it. Yet they don't believe it. Like we said last week, these people knew Jesus, but they hadn't experienced him. They, they kind of knew Jesus, but they hadn't really jumped in and, and really experienced him and really known who he was. And it's the same way with the resurrection. Like you can kind of have an idea of who God is and you can hear about the resurrection, but until you re really experience resurrection in your life, and by that I mean see your life change and see God cause you to be someone different than who you really are, to see the, the way that you operate and the things that motivate you be traded out from greed and hostility and anger and rage and uh, lust and whatever else is in there, to see that traded out with holiness and righteousness. Now, we're not all perfect, but here's the, here's the thing, that a Christian's life is going to be consistently characterized by resurrection. But resurrection, there's going to be this resurrection that's going on in their life on a regular basis because it's true. It's true. It's coming out of us. It's, it's causing us to become different people. It's causing us to be someone who is working and operating within our, in our city that says this, that like, I want everyone to know and I want everyone to see that Jesus is the greatest God of all time. I want them to see that he's everything to me and I want them to see that he can change their life too. But here's the thing, is that we're also like these disciples. We hear it over and over again, but we don't believe it. We hear it over and over again, but we just don't believe what's actually being said to us. Now, why is that happening? I think it really comes down to that we oftentimes don't really want to believe this story because it feels like a legend. It feels like it's just, it's just another story like Braveheart. Or it's just another story like The Matrix. 
and he didn't really raise from the dead, and they really made all of this up. Our lack of belief is because we overlook the things that Jesus has said. We overlook who he is. We overlook the historical record. Over and over again, we overlook it. And as a result, we don't get to experience resurrection in our lives. So where are you at today? Have you experienced him? Have you understood him? Do you just know about his resurrection? Or have you experienced resurrection in your life? Have you experienced it? Throughout the scriptures, over and over again, it's more than just a few statements by Jesus, but there there really is a way of looking at the scriptures that show us who Jesus is. And I believe this, that when you really concentrate on the actual words of scripture and you look at what they're saying and you look at how Jesus is viewed throughout those scriptures, one of the things that you're going to see is you're going to see that he really is God. He really is the greatest God of all time. There is no other God. He is God, the Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is God. So how do we look at that? Well, there's a a great book that uh, talks about um, how to understand this. And I wrote it down here somewhere. I will see it in just a moment. Oh, putting Jesus in his place. There we go. It talks about the case for the deity of Christ. And they lay out a couple of things. A simple way of looking at this. An acronym by the name of uh, HANDS. And it talks about the honors of God. Jesus shares the honors of God. Jesus shares the attributes, a- attributes of God. Jesus shares the names of God. Jesus shares the deeds of God. And Jesus shares the seat of God. So what this says is essentially that Jesus shares the honors only due to God. When you look at Jesus, are you just seeing this person or are you seeing that he is truly God? When you look at his resurrection and it verifies and it ratifies all of these other things, do you look at him and you say, he is my God? This is who he is. Or are you essentially saying, you know, I, you know I'm ki- I kind of look at Jesus that way, but not really. Or maybe I I don't really believe what the scriptures have to say about him. What does that look like? Well, Jesus shares the honors due only to God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 9 through 10, in fact, even broader than that, but just the part that we're talking about here, it says that Satan says to Jesus, all these kingdoms of the world I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes a passage out of Deuteronomy that's dedicated to God himself. And Jesus applies this to himself. And he he says he essentially understands that that he should not uh, worship anything else. And so he understands the idea that God is the only one that should be worshipped. And yet, as you go on in Jesus' life, say from Thomas' life, John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas answers Jesus. 
when he's able to put his finger in his hands or touch his side, and he sees that he really is Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God, and he worships him in that way. Then in Matthew chapter 28, it says, 28 verse 17, it says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. The key thing about this is that these people were worshiping Jesus as God. He is truly God because he's been risen from the grave. You can see this. He was God. He is God. He has been God forever. But this proves his Godhood. Secondly, God shares the attributes of God. He shares the things in common with God. He is the creator, John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. He's unchanging. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He's eternal. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He grants forgiveness from Mark chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiving, forgiven. Jesus shares the attributes of God. Remember this. His resurrection proves that when he said, Son, your sins are forgiven, that he can say that because he is God. And if he's not God, he can't say that. The resurrection proves that he has the attributes of God and therefore it is meaningful in our lives. It proves that he is the greatest God of all time. Third, Jesus shares the names that are used of God. Jesus says this in, in John chapter 8, verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say that? Because he's being questioned by some Jewish people that know the Old Testament. And what is Jesus referring to? Jesus is referring to a conversation that Moses has with God from Exodus 3, 13 through 15. And, and it says this, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Remember what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was very specific with these people. He was very specific and he said, the God of the Old Testament, I am. I am. Who's saving you? Who is this God who's saving you? Is it, is it Jesus, God in the flesh? Is it something that somebody has made up? Is it a distortion of the truth for, through some other religion? Do you really look at, at Jesus and say, He is the great I am. He is the one who can save me. He is the one who has always existed. I could go on with that. In fact, I will. Revelation uh, 1, 5 through 8. Jesus says, I am, I'm sorry, Revelation 22, verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
He's uncreated. He has always been. He's the Alpha and the Omega. This is the Jesus that we get to be with forever. He's not dead. He's not this unfortunate hero that, that fell on a sword. He's not someone who was accidentally shot. He's not someone who was executed, but he is the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega, and he shares that with God and name of God. Number four, Jesus shares the deeds that only God can do. Like I said, Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 through 17, one of my favorites. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, this is Jesus. He's the one. He is the one. These are his deeds. He is to be worshipped for this. He is to be honored. He is God. But if you don't see him that way, it can't be effective in your life. It hasn't been ratified in your life. You're not experiencing resurrection in your life. You're simply experiencing another story. It's another fable. And that's about it. He's the judge. John 5, verse 22 through 23, the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. He's the judge. And he is to be honored in the same way that the Father is honored. He is to be worshipped in the same way that the Father is worshipped because he is the judge. Now, is Jesus your judge or are you your judge? Next week, we're beginning a series called Designer Sex. And I think what it really comes down to is this. When it comes to sexuality in our society, the question is, who is the judge? Who is the great judge? Is it Jesus? Or is it what I think? Is it society? Or is it Jesus? Because that's really what it comes down to. Because, listen, what it's going to take to survive in this world, especially in matters of sexuality, what it's going to take to survive through the wave that is coming and has come is to believe that Jesus is my judge. That Jesus is the one. And the reason why he can take that place is because he is the lamb who has been slain to take away the sins of the world. But on the third day, he was risen from the grave. Amen. Yes. Got some southern gospel people in here. 
going to liven this place up. He's risen from the grave. And what does that mean? Like, if Jesus isn't the resurrected Savior in your life, you cannot honestly stand up and say that this is what I believe. That this is, this is what I believe because of this. Because if he wasn't resurrected or you don't really think about that or it's not really sure in your head, then it's not effective in your life. And so when pressure comes and they say, you must believe this to be a legitimate member of society or to not go to jail or to whatever, what you have to say or what you have to believe is this, is that he's my judge and he is God because he's the lamb who was slain, he took away my sins and therefore he is God because he's been raised from the grave. Without that, you have nothing. The resurrection means everything. If there is no resurrection, Paul says, then we are to be pitied above everyone else. And here's why. Because we will go through all kinds of difficulty. Are you ready to be a Christian? Are you ready to act like one in society? You're going to get an opportunity to prove it. He is my judge. He is God because of his resurrection. And that means everything to me. And so say what you will. Mock me with whatever tweets you have. Make dumb Facebook posts and memes. Do whatever you want. But Jesus is my God. Jesus is my God. And he is my judge. Is Jesus your God? Is he your judge? Because the last one here, it says Jesus shares the seat of God. That is, Jesus sits on God's throne. He is sitting there, meaning he has all rule all authority, all power. I don't know if you've ever read Revelation much, but there's a particular story where Jesus is coming on the clouds and he's on a white horse and he's got a killer tattoo going down his top thigh, you know? Have you read this? You need to read it. Should we get tattoos? I don't know. Jesus did. Whatever. I don't have any or any that I should show you at least, but um, I actually don't, but I just want to leave you guessing. Jesus comes and he is, he's riding on this white horse and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. And I know that sounds awkward, but like, man, I just, that's just going to be crazy. That's going to be craziness. Like, you can go back and you can say, like, that's, that is folklore. That's a legend. That's a story. And you can say whatever you want. But at the end of the day, like, the Bible is not a book that one person sat down and they were like, you know, I think I'm going to write this. Like, no one believes that. No one believes that because that's not true. This is 
a series of historical manuscripts that have been put together, and there is proof upon proof upon proof, manuscript after manuscript after manuscript. Let me show you one bit of evidence here from our actual passage. The next verse, verse 9, right before it. Your Bible might say this, it may not. The ESV says this because it wants to be very clear as to what they believe is Scripture and what might be in question. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Why are they saying that? Because the oldest dated manuscripts do not have those verses in there. And they just want you to know that that cannot be depended on. Guess what else that means? Everything else does come from the earliest manuscripts. What are we talking about here? We're talking about proven historical record. And if it's not been proven or if there's any question, we're going to tell you. It's historical record. And you could say, well, I don't really believe it because of that. But listen, you're going against many, many thousands of years of historical record. And some of us come to a place where we say, you know, I don't really know. I mean, like, prove it to me. Prove it to yourself. Prove it to yourself. Why is that on me? Why is that on the Christian community? Tim Keller has this great statement that says, uh, have you ever doubted your doubts? Like we always come up to someone, yeah, prove it. Well, how about this? How about you prove your doubts? Because there's actually way more evidence to prove where I'm standing and way less evidence to prove where you're standing. Because it's simply coming out of your mind because you're saying, I don't believe. And that's it. Well, have you ever doubted that you don't believe? Have you ever actually looked at the historical record? Here's here's where we're at. That if we don't understand the truth claims that Jesus makes, if you don't see that when Jesus says and when the scriptures say that he was resurrected from the dead, like if that's not true, the entire thing falls apart. It's not like, well, it's a good system of of living. No, it's not. Because guess what? If this is all we have, then let us eat and drink and have sex and do whatever we want because tomorrow we die. If this life is all there is to live for, then you have no reason to be a moral person. Do whatever you want. However often you want. You have no reason to do anything, but you say, oh no, that's not the way I want to live. Why? Why? Why not? Well, I I want to be a good person. I want to be a good person in society. Well, wait, wait a second. Why? Because this life is all that there is. Why would you keep yourself from having fun? Why would you keep yourself from that? Here's the thing. You have a moral code that's been written on your heart, and you know that it's wrong to just walk away from your family. And you know that it's wrong to just step out on things. You feel the impending guilt on yourself. You must see this. That this system of religion that you call it is not that. It is all dependent on this one person, Jesus in the flesh. And if he was not resurrected from the dead, then the entire thing falls apart. Either he did or he didn't. Either he is or he isn't. And I want to tell you this. Every great story gets its storyline from Jesus Christ. 
And it's incumbent upon you to see if it's true. Because your hopes ride on that with every movie that you watch, with every story that you read, and it's true. Jesus is the greatest God of all time because he was slain for things he did not do. And he was risen from the grave and death no longer has its sting. And as a result, you can be resurrected from the dead. Do you believe? Who do you say that I am? Is Jesus your God? Or is our society, is Jesus your God? Or is it your own mind? Is Jesus your God? Or what you think is just your own moral compass? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that this morning that we would truly be people not just of the cross, but people of the empty tomb. That we would be people who not only believe that you went to the cross for us, but that we would also be people who believe that you've been resurrected from the dead. And it is in and through that that we believe that you are God in the flesh. So Lord, we ask you for this. We pray that it would permeate our lives. And Lord, that it would change the way that we think. That it would remove all doubt from us. The Lord, that we truly experience resurrection in our lives as we go about our daily things. That God, that you bring resurrection to relationships. That Lord, I, I pray that we truly experience the hope that comes from knowing that we get to see you again. That we get to be with you, that that was not the end, that that was not the last word in that tomb. So Lord, we pray for that. We pray that you'd speak to us this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen.